0: In the era of fast media, the art of storytelling is often overshadowed by the need to turn and burn, feeding an insatiable mass unchecked and meaningless fact just to keep the machine churning. Tommy Hyde stands in opposition to this notion. Hiding behind his lens for the better part of a decade, he allowed a story to unfold uninfluenced by opinion or deadlines with intrigue as his only driver. Today, on Cocina Pirata Podcast, Tommy joins me to discuss evolution through creation, finding meaning in subjects perceived as mundane, and how we move forward using stewards of the land as our guide.
1: Contra la muerte, nosotros demandamos vida. Contra el silencio, exigimos la palabra y el respeto. Contra el olvido, la memoria. Contra la humillación y el desprecio, la dignidad. Contra la opresión, la rebeldía contra la esclavitud, la libertad, contra la imposición, la democracia, y contra el crimen, la justicia. Cheers to fucking... To foam micheladas.
0: <laughs> uh, so I did want to, I do want to start actually asking you, are you from Vermont?
1: No, uh... An adopted Vermonter. Um, I grew up in Connecticut in what I like to call the panhandle. You know, Connecticut's like a square. Yeah. And there's just that little nub yep. off the bottom, the panhandle. I grew up there. Um, and then my grandma uh lived in Virgins growing up. Um, okay. So I came up here every summer and
0: did your mom grow Did your mom grow up
1: in Virgins? No. Uh my great grandma and great grandpa um used to hang at, do you know the Basin Harbor Club? Yeah, in absolutely. They hung out there, and then my grandma hung out there, and then my mom hung out there, and then I hung out there. There was just like a family spot. Just coming um, up from Connecticut. Yeah, in the summers, um, and I just loved it. And then I went to camp in Salisbury, like canoe tripping camp, and then I went to college here, and then I moved here, and then I tried to leave to go to the West Coast like four or five times, and I just always come back. Yeah. So It's not a a unique story. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it kind of is. The
0: the funny part of that story is Connecticut. Like there's so many people from Connecticut that I meet now. My mom's family, my mom grew up in Connecticut. My my grandmother is from, her last name is, her maiden name is Barton or was Barton. Um, So she's from the Northeast kingdom. And I guess Mm -hmm. they moved to Connecticut and that's where my mom grew up. But I've met a lot of people from Connecticut up here. Connecticut is actually apparently where Miller, where this Miller infatuation comes from. Oh, really? Because my mom my mama asked me if when I was
1: telling her that Bob drinks Miller, she was like, "Oh, is he from there?" Because they drank Miller High Life growing up. Well, they say that. Um, I heard this recently that Connecticut is the land of steady habits, um, <laughs> which just if you spent any time in Connecticut, it fits so perfectly. You know, people there get on a trajectory, or they're into their Miller High Life, and that's just steady. I've never been,
0: so we've like driven through Connecticut, obviously I've driven through Connecticut. Um, my mom's from Enfield. And so I think one time we made like this, I don't even know where the fuck Enfield is, but I feel like Connecticut is the place on the East coast that you just don't know anything. Like what hap- What's like, what happens in maybe that's the steady yeah. <laughs> trajectory, but like what yeah. happens in Connecticut?
1: Uh, it's a really, it's a really good question. Um, not, not a whole lot. I mean, in, in, in the context of uh, New England, there's not like a, uh, you know, it's not Rhode Island. It doesn't have like the coast and Providence. It's not Massachusetts, it doesn't have Boston. Like there's no big city, there's no like big natural wonder there. And so it sort of flies under the radar. Um, but I, you know, for all of the the shit that I give my hometown, um, relatively like homogeneous place, suburbs of New York. Like when I go back there now, not a lot of interesting stuff going on. Um, I consistently meet funky people who are coming from Connecticut. Who you'd never think that they're from the landy steady habits, but they've broken out and they're doing cool things. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of awesome people in Connecticut too. Um, but Vermont feels like the adopted home.
0: And all of your families in Connecticut still?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, my dad's in North Carolina now and my brother's in New York city. Uh, but everyone has the Vermont sort of soul heart connection for sure.
0: Maybe what, maybe what makes people young people interesting coming out of Connecticut is just the, the steady habits. They're ready to break free from them. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's it.
1: Did film start for you there in Connecticut? No. Um, I started doing film in college. Um, I took a a freshman year class, Um, Middlebury had this thing uh, where they do, in January you take one full class, um, but that's the only thing you take for an entire month. Um, And so I took this class, Adventure Writing and Digital Storytelling. And uh, I got assigned with a buddy to um, basically go out and hang out with a local and do, write a story and make a little video about them. Um, and our professor told us about this dairy farmer on the outskirts of town. Uh, so we drove out there and uh, got out of the car and we had cameras on cameras. And uh, this farmer, without knowing who we were, introduced himself He's like, hey, I'm Doug, come with me, and just starts like giving us a tour of his farm. Um, and, uh, next thing, you know, we are covered head to toe in cow shit <laughs> and are doing things that we never, you know, from my sheltered upbringing, in Connecticut would have never imagined ever doing. Um, but was also connecting, you know, the coolest part of my summer every year was going to the Addison County fair. Have you been to the, um, Addison County field days? I haven't, but the cleaning guy here has been telling me yes. about the Addison County field yes, days. Yes, he, he knows it's, it's the truth, man. Um, it's like all of, um, the beautiful, you know, Vermont farm culture on display, um, you know, biggest squash competitions. And, um, you know, they have the whole four H program, um, the demo Derby, uh, and going there, um, every summer was like, it totally blew my fucking mind as a kid because, you know, everyone was the same in Connecticut, you know, it was a town where it was, Darien was a town where it was like weird to wear jeans. Like that's everyone wore khakis. Like that's the sort of level of boringness we're talking about. So the Addison <laughs> County field day is like, holy shit, there's like different people in this world. Um, and so I, I, it sort of clicked for me pretty quickly. Like, Oh, like this is one of those dudes. Um, so we made like a, um, a shitty two minute film about him and, and I wrote a piece about him, but then Doug and I just stayed friends. Um, and he talked about this, you know, when we were there that month, this dream he had of um, taking his dogs. Like, that's, that's the reason why the professor sent us out there in the first place, because he was unique in that he had a um, dog sled team, um, like, behind his ha- farmhouse, basically. Yeah. A um, hundred dogs behind his farmhouse. And uh, he told us about, you know, this plan he had to go to Alaska um, and races his dogs in the sprint racing championships of the world. And the way he talked about it, you know, it sounded like he was going that year. Um, but then slowly over the years, I realized like, oh, Doug isn't going to Alaska. And not only that, he's <laughs> literally at the age of 65, never left his farm for more than five days in his entire life. Like he's never seen the ocean. Um, so wild. And so- it just struck me like, well, wouldn't it be so cool to like see him go to Alaska? Like, what would that look like? Yeah. Um, and so that started this whole ten-year process of of making a feature film about Doug. Yeah, how old are you now? Thirty. And you so you started like you met Doug at eighteen. Ish. I met him at ni- yeah nineteen. Nineteen. Yeah. And that's
0: the the the. Um... Subject of your of the document the the pending documentary has it been released yet? Or? Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, well, it's it's finished and we're we're like in the process of releasing it right now.
0: That's crazy. And so is the is the content gathering started at nineteen and has continued throughout the years from this relationship and this Ka- want to see Doug go to Alaska.
1: Yeah, kind of. I mean, I pretty much threw out seven years of footage or six years of footage because it was basically unusable um, because I never really took a film class. Um, I just sort of had a haphazard uh, amalgamation of borrowed equipment and I'd just sort of walk over and I'd film and then I'd edit a little bit and continue to make mistakes. Um, and so none of that footage was really usable, but what was happening in all that time was the, the film was developing a look and feel I was developing a style um, and I was also starting to blend into the wallpaper um, around the farm and around Doug and around Doug's family. And so really interesting things started to happen. Like the walls started to come down. And I mean, you're from rural Vermont, you know, the like sort of uh, flinty toughness where it can be tough to get, you know, the farmer from down the road to talk about his feelings. And yet all of a sudden now I'm, you know, in the room when Doug is talking about his depression and Doug is talking about his thoughts of suicide and Doug is talking about, um, you know, like really deep things with his sister and, you know, and then all these like magical moments of like calves being born or like the joy of him deer hunting, um, which he just like, he's like a little kid. He's just, so outrageously excited. Um, And then the same thing with the dogs, like the the toil and the expense um, of trying to keep this dog team afloat, but then also like the unbridled joy of just ripping behind an 18-dog team, just cruising. And he he, uh, sings and dances and drinks beer on the back of the dog sled.
0: While Um, it's moving.
1: Yeah, he'll have like seven or eight beers in 45 minutes. He has like different buddies at all these races around the Northeast and in Canada. And he's frequently in last place, but he's the favorite at all these races. And he has people, like his legend sort of precedes him. And there are people at different checkpoints on these races and they're like clamoring to hand him a beer. And he is not the best at dog racing, but he is amazing at catching a beer on the run (laughs) and then drinking it. And, uh, so yeah, I guess I was just like, this dude really intrigued me and I wasn't sure why. And so I just kept filming to try to figure it out.
0: That's so wild. Like, so to some extent your career, like at at this current state was inspired by this dude. Totally. And you guys have been on this journey together, but separately to some extent, no? Totally. Professor Butler. Um,
1: <laughs> and from the school of hard knocks. And is that dude that
0: is, is Doug like family now is Doug, like a, a brother, a father. A- totally.
1: Totally. Um You know, as I was making the film too, I started to learn more about like journalistic norms and all that. And um, you know, it's, especially in print, print journalism or sort of more factual journalism, there's a lot more uh, sort of distance that you're supposed to put between you and your subject to remain objective. Um, but I remember um, listening to a really amazing Werner Herzog interview, who's like my hero in, in the world of film. Um, and he talked about this idea of like an emotional truth, uh, which is, you know, one that's not based on you know the facts exactly as they happened but rather like the feeling of those facts like there which can only come from like embellishment and theater and like you can you can create a more a truth that's more closer that's closer to you know its essence if you're creative in in getting there yeah. um and so part of that process for me was just like developing like a really close relationship to Doug and like a lot of trust. Like I um, really commend him for the amount of trust that he put in me um, to, you know, carry this vulnerability out into the world Um, and like so much courage and bravery from him to be able to, to share it. Do you think that it was, do you think that it was, I
0: mean, it seems like from the story you're telling that it was, just adopted like it wasn't really like that so when you're explaining it doesn't seem like what you're doing is reporting so when you're talking about like journalistic truth and like the essence of life those two things i don't think go hand in hand so it's like maybe it wasn't trust. Maybe that just was reality. Maybe that is reality, right? Like mm-hmm. you guys just were together so fucking much that it just turned into this situation where you were part of life and that is reality. Because I feel a lot of times when you watch documentaries, there is an objective regardless of, of, of whether or not it's impartial or, or is supposed to be impartial. There's still an objective and like an end to the story. Does it feel difficult telling a story like Doug's story to put like like how the fuck do you end something like that with him? The story's not over. I assume Doug's still alive, correct, and you mm-hmm. guys still have a relationship. Mm-hmm. so I guess to me it seems like I was, it just seems like a really fucking weird situation to put a pin on or, or to say that it's like trust and it's not just like normal life or that he's given you trust instead of you just like adapting into his lifestyle. Mm -hmm. It's like an endless series of events that continues to happen. You can't really, I mean, how do you end it?
1: Yeah. I mean, it makes you want to make it for 10 years. (laughs) I I (laughs) I think eventually you start, you know, running out of time and money and patience and you have to sort of put a, put a bow on it and like it's also sort of like an artistic journal entry, and you know being able to like you know um, finish it and 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 move on to to different things has has been great, but uh it's true like the more you hang around, the more life happens, and then the more interesting things happen you know originally, I thought it, you know once so we we did end up getting to Alaska, so we drove from Middlebury, Vermont to Fairbanks, Alaska, which is forty eight hundred miles one way um that's because
0: wild. Did you drive like north and then through Canada or across the country and through we like North Dakota? like
1: first to Chicago, which is where we saw like the, the, the widest eyes because we were in a essentially like a F-350, like a 1980s F-350 with an extended chassis with this big box built on the back with all these kennels with 22 dogs. And so we'd stop and like get gas like outside of O'Hare, and people would be like, "Who are you, people? Like, <laughs> what is happening?" And you'd have to, you know, every three hours you have to pull over and bring all the dogs down and clip. They have little um, sort of chains that connect them, their collars, um, to the side of the truck so they can all like go to the bathroom in a busy parking out, parking lot on the side of I eighty. Yeah, and then you get back in. So we went through Chicago and then up through North Dakota. And then up into like Ontario, Alberta, British Columbia, um, and then up the Alaskan Highway into the Yukon, and then over into Alaska. And the only people who were not surprised to see us were the, um, the we were just talking about the the border the yeah. Kebequah border, the people at the Alaskan border were like, Hey, where are you guys coming from? You, you racing, what race are you going to in Alaska? Cause it's, it's the state sport in Alaska. I guess So it's like
0: status quo for them to see. Yeah.
1: And so Doug's like this outlier in the rest of his life and we get to Alaska and it's like everyone dog mushes. It's like totally normal. Um, so uh, yeah, it was a, it was a sweet scene and Doug's goal was very, um, Uh, modest, he just didn't want to come in last. Yeah. Um, And he came in second to last. Um, And won, uh, there was one award where all the different teams competing would vote on the person who exemplified the spirit of the sport the best. You could call it a sportsmanship award. Yeah. And Doug won that. He's like an MVP. um, I thought the film would be done at that point, Um, but then when we got back uh, to Vermont, it was clear the farm was in peril and in danger of going bankrupt um because he had left or or just from just all the shit it's uh um it was like a medium sized commodity dairy farm um sort of like right in that pocket of all the dairies that have been going out of business in the past five years um just because you know they're not small enough to be making value added products like cheese um and they're not big enough to be turning a profit on uh, commodity milk as farms get bigger and the, those prices go down. Uh, so it was just, it was going to happen eventually. Um, yeah. and so uh, I just, and, and, you know, I had a work partner at that point, this guy, Aaron, um, and, uh, we made the call just to stick it out to see what would happen. And eventually he had to sell his cows, um, which is the same herd that his, uh, grandpa, um, sort of drove down from Starksboro um, walking with like eight cows. It's like that same (laughs) genetics of that herd had to, you know, go to the auction house and and sell them and figure out his life. That's wild. At at what age? 65. And he has the land still or? He's got some of the land. Um, Vermont Land Trust did a great job in helping conserve some of it. Um, He had to sell little bits of it, but he's got most of the land. I think he he told me recently, and this could be a classic Doug embellishment, that he just broke the record for the longest stint in bankruptcy court in state history.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And he's very proud of that. That's wild. and what if it's a pretty fucking cool story. And it's a, it's like a, that's a super Vermont story also, right? Like not just, well, I guess the, the, uh, the farmer stuck in a place because something that this state was built on and I'm sure that his and you know, his ancestors, his grandfather, his great grandfather. My my family came from, you know, my on my dad's side. My grandfather's father was a gentleman farmer. My grandfather grew up milking a cow, his first milking cows. He milked the lame cows at the at the farm because they oh, had wow. like mechanized milking system. But yeah. he was the youngest, uh, he was the youngest son. So he milked the lame cows that couldn't take to the machines. And his first job was He bought or his first business, he says, was when he was 16 years old. He bought one of the lame cows and would milk it and like bring the fucking tin of milk down to the down to the creamery and get it made. But it it this this state subsided on dairy farming for years and and commodity farms destroyed that essentially, you know? And 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 those farmers owned a a vast majority of the land that existed in this state and when everything fell apart they had to sell it for pennies on the dollar of what it was worth because the farm like no one fucking farms here anymore because it's not worthwhile you can't make that money anymore yeah so uh, that's oh, oh that's and that's the end of it like we're at the end of it now and you got to document that was that the do you think that that was the in hindsight, was that like the most valuable piece of information that you gathered? The most valuable story that you gathered was like this disintegration of, uh, the last vestiges of a working class society functioning in a state like Vermont.
1: Yeah. Uh, maybe, you know, I don't know if there's anyone who could hold out the longest. It's certainly Doug. Um, and, you know, I think I think the most rewarding th- thing that I got from the process and what I hope people take from the film is that, um, you know, here is this guy whose life might look a lot different from mine. It certainly did the first day I showed up. Um, and for a lot of people, you know, like, He has a hundred dogs behind his house and he has 600 cows and he's got this crazy long hair and he tells the same joke every single day. Like he's, it looks different. Um, But he's up against the, these forces beyond his control um, which I think we've all sort of felt over the past two, three years, especially through the pandemic. Um, And just greets it with this joy that helps him get through. Um, And I think it's like his response to the disintegration of, of an industry and his response to, um, you know, all the um, difficulties um, that he has to go through. That is, you know, the most inspiring thing. Like he's, he's a a portrait of resilience that i think we can we can totally learn from
0: yeah there's a lot there's fuck there's there's so many of those around here no totally it is it is wild to be and and i'm sure i mean it, 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 this is a can be a a segue into another conversation that i wanted to spark with you is is like so now understanding much more about that Doug relationship and how that shaped your perspective. You said you also, you've been to Mexico. You did some documentary work in Mexico. Um, One of the things that I, so when I moved West, when I was 18, I was snowboarding and, you know, on a, on a low level, like I was sponsored. I was an amateur snowboarder. I was traveling for snowboarding, Um, but I was cooking. And when I moved West, I met, you know, started cooking in restaurants on the West, which all were employed. Most of the employees were of, uh, Latin American, you know, Spanish, Mexican heritage, sorry. Um, and so I instantly grew attached to them because I align with their mentality that I think is the same as I think that they're like Doug's who speak Spanish or, or, I'm trying to find a, a way to put in this into words. Like I, there's just a, there's just a, 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 I think the similarity is just working class, like a working class that unders that that's driven by their ownership of land, their connection to land, their love for land. Like that's who they are as human beings. They embody, you know, the soil, which with, with on which they stand. Um, did you, did you, feel any of that when you were there? Did it like help you move through that space when you were trying to gather information about people or, or, or garner relationships with these human beings? Like, did you feel some of that same connection? Yeah. Like, did you feel, did you like find Doug's spirit in Mexico? Yeah,
1: that's a good question. Um, so that, that same, if I explain that properly, yeah, yeah, yeah no, you totally did. <laughs> you totally did. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I, I guess I see that sort of parallel in, there's this, there's this, I listen to a lot of, uh, like gospel music and spiritual music. And there's this, do you know Mahalia Jackson, that singer? I don't. She's like Aretha Franklin's idol. Okay. So like the lady who inspired Aretha, you can imagine she's got, she's got the pipes. Um, and there's this really beautiful tune. Um, and, the the chorus goes like, Lord, don't move that mountain, but give me the strength to climb. And the whole idea is that like, you don't learn anything if you're not being challenged, but getting over a challenge, like that's, that's, that's it. Like that is life and that is growth. Um, and I, I think part, we were down in Mexico to, to shoot a film about, a um, a, uh, Mexican national serving a life sentence in the Iowa state penitentiary system. Um, and uh, always thought that his uh, story paralleled Doug's in a, in a crazy way. Cause it, here's another person, you know, at the bottom of the power structure. I mean, even more so he's a um, undocumented immigrant serving a life sentence for first degree murder. So like if you think of the power, American power structure, he is at the very bottom. Um, and yet he has this really inspiring story of of growth and resilience and innocence. Um, and I think I saw a lot of that in Mexico, like c- communal, like communities still still feel very much intact. Like you don't have the, like the, the, the the condo complexes where people don't really know their neighbors like no everyone's super tight um, because resources are a little bit more tight and they got to band together to to you know to work through it um, and it's a remarkably friendly place and like Vermont um, you know we were hanging in Khan for the most part which is relatively um, rural um, you know I love the ability that Vermonters have to just stop everything they're doing and just shoot the breeze for an indeterminate amount of time. And like the Mexicans that we're hanging out with had that same ability, which I, I really, um, I really appreciated. Yeah. Did that answer your question? A hundred percent.
0: Yeah. It's you, you, you definitely put it into words much better than I tried, attempted to, um, but that's one of the things that drew, like when I moved to Mexico or first started, you know, yeah. in, in 2015. So I, you, you see it in in moments between the interact. That's one of the things that drew me to eventually go there in 2015, and like really dig in deep is to see the way that they interact as a community when they're work. Like all of the people, all of the Mexican people that work together know each other. They treat each other as family. They share moments. They share time, um, and they are this, this like, this happiness to face challenge that you, that you eloquently outlined, I think embodies who they are and Vermonters as well. Um, one of the reasons that I was really attracted is because, so I think that in Vermont, those people exist, but those people are the people like Doug who are disappearing. Mm. Their land is disappearing their means to subside on the land are disappearing. Um, It still exists in Mexico. Mexico has been fighting for since the first time Europeans planted their feet on that soil. They've been fighting specifically for that thing. I feel like now after living there and working hand in hand with you know being involved with people that i'm sure that you were also interacting with seeing them continue the fight and the fight actually like transcending generations i feel like in vermont that's just not happening we're we're kind of forgetting about the older generation and we're saying like okay technology is going to take over the land isn't really that much more important the solutions that we look for in making the world or our state a better place, quote unquote, don't involve the wisdom of our elders. Mm -hmm. I, I, I wonder if, you know, I lived in a very rural place in Mexico. And so the people that I interacted with were not very well educated. Their children, to some extent, were becoming educated, but still involved in everyday practices because there wasn't enough money for them to like not go to work or not put their hand into feeding the family or mm-hmm. or or just buying whatever the fuck it is that they need, they're involved in the practice. The same way my grandfather was involved in waking up at five o'clock in the morning and milking the cows. Yeah. I don't think that there's many children even in the farming community in Vermont that are doing that anymore. Um, I think we've become okay with just letting that happen here because we're okay with not, Again, to go back to what you were saying, we're okay with like not facing that challenge every day to move forward to accept that that challenge will make us stronger and that that's part of life and that's the story of life. To go back to this gospel situation, right? Yeah. And so, to me, that's why I love Mexico. Why even now being here, like one of the reasons why why I decided to come back to Vermont is because I, I am drawn to this place. Like my family's here. I want my child to see this type of life. Um, but I also, you know, I speak Spanish to my child at home and I am more proud of his Mexican culture than his American or his, sorry, his Mexican heritage than his American heritage because I feel like his Mexican heritage is what will make him strong and accept, um, accept challenges as, as an inherent part of life and I just don't know if we're there and I, it, hmm. I I I did I grew up that way in Vermont I grew up in a in a whatever you want to call it lower middle class family working class family and I watched that's what I was taught I was taught challenges is how we learn in life
1: um it's a it's a big question it's one I thought a lot about and in, in the context of Vermont, I'd be curious as to your experience in, in Mexico. But I think that whole idea is complicated because on the one hand, you know, it is nice to drive down the road and see a dairy farm and see the black and white Holsteins and know that there's, a, you know, a farmer there doing what his dad did, doing what his grandfather did. On the other hand, as I got to learn with Doug, like he wants the same things that you and I want. Like he wants to not have to go to work on Sunday. He wants to, you know, put new shingles on his house. He wants a new phone. Um, And so I think it's, it, for me, uh, I think at the beginning of my journey, I was sort of putting Doug a little bit behind museum glass, um, and sort of hoping that his way of life would stay the same. And yet, through the process of watching his life change, realized you know how much of how he was really freed from this burden um, that you know he had just sort of fallen into. Um, and so I, you know. I, it's, it's curious in Vermont because so many people, myself included, um, have begun to move in from other places and um, have brought different resources. A lot of people are working jobs that, um, you know, are, are outside of Vermont. So they're making, you know, New York City wages or San Francisco wages. Um, and, you know, now there are, you know, I'll never forget hanging out with Doug and, and trying to walk into the Middlebury co-op. And he's like, what's over there? And I was like, Oh, it's the co-op. Let's go get some food. And he's like, that place isn't for me. And that like really stuck with me. Cause there's like, here's a dude who's been here his whole life and he doesn't feel welcome in a space in his town because it, it's too, whatever it's too. Um, I don't know exactly what the word would be, but, um, Yeah. So like there's a little bit of polarization in, in uh, there's quite a bit of polarization in Vermont. Like I'm curious if you see that in, in Mexico, I've been to like a couple of the more touristy put places and like Mexico city. I mean, you see it a little bit. Um, but like, does that play into your perception of that place or do you, does the idea of, of, um, so struggle change at all with the idea, that, like you know, folks are all looking kind of for the same comforts. To su- I mean, this is like
0: uh, this is uh, can definitely be a super esoteric conversation or question, right? Oh yeah, I think we're there. Uh, <laughs> so. I definitely think that everybody on the face of the planet wants to be equal with every other person on the face of the planet. And I think that if you're sitting in a place of, especially if what you do is production of a thing, like let's use Doug as an example in the United States, a guy who makes milk and doesn't feel comfortable to walk into a co-op. What Doug's milk probably, I don't know how big Doug's farm was. Or, you know, you said it was commodity. I don't know if what he's doing is selling to if he's selling his milk to a company that then mixes that milk with a bunch of fucking other milk, puts it in a jug, sells it for way too cheap. Essentially, Doug is selling the milk for pennies more than it costs him to produce. And that's why he's dealing with the issues he's dealing with. Um so that trade doesn't work. This like if we're talking like farmer to farmer trade doesn't work the same way in Mexico, in Mexico, if you have a, a production farm, you're probably making a lot of money. Like if you're the owner of that farm, you're probably making a lot of money. If you're a worker, you have a set wage and that's what you're making. But the people who are producing for the farmers that I worked with, for example, are struggling because they're trying to enter a market that won't allow them to enter. So, you know, I'm, to to give an example, the farm that I work with specifically to help raise funds to build infrastructure, San Juan Elementos, they converted a 40 hectare farm, 40 hectares of land that had been a farm that's been in the family for a long period of time. They started growing regeneratively using the Bokashi method of fertilizing, which is all things from around the land. And um, they... A are not allowed to enter the mercado because the mercado, the people who are selling vegetables in the mercado own the stands. They're buying shit from the north for pennies on the dollar. Even if they want to sell their spinach for exactly the same price, they're just not going to let them in because it's like a mafia. So they have to sell their shit for less to somebody who will sell it. If they want to sell, in the organic market, there, they can still sell their shit for the same price, but then it's gonna get turned around. Like, you know, in La Punta, there's a little store that sells their product and they'll turn around and make much more money off it and live a much better life. Their concern is n- absolutely not having nice things. They don't give a fuck. Their concern is making sure that their community thrives and they have a place to live. And they're comfortable living in the little three room cement structure that they have with the 40 hectares of land. And their concern is their land, their community, and their people. I'm not so sure that Doug's. I'm not so sure that, like, I'm sure the reason they want community is because community takes care of community, I think, Mm -hmm. right? Like, that's my perspective of it. So, if there was a community here whose perspective, like, and they're living insulated on the coast in vast swaths of land where the entire community is living in the same structure, right? like we're we're talking about in Mexico, as you've seen a huge population of quote unquote, one percenters, there's no middle class, right. Which I think bridges that gap between like, why do you have this? And why do I have that? But anyways, I, I guess I, I, I believe this is my belief and my thought, my perspective, maybe it'll change being here for a while, but like I do think that Vermont used to be that place. I do think Vermont used to be that place where like all of the farmers had all of this fucking land and they all took care of each other and they could all train. They didn't have to worry about anything. They didn't have to worry about their land getting taken away. They didn't have to worry about not having the money to get X, Y, and Z Mm. because they knew they had their land. They had their food. They had their fucking hundred dogs that they could feed because the guy down the road was helping them in some manner get something that was going to help them. So... I think the perspective shift is actually, and not just people coming in from the outside, but just society changing
1: here. And yeah, the- and policy changing, and and I don't know. I think it's the the commodity farms. I think are what brought about, from my understanding, those communities. You know, it started like you know, you know, like your your uh, your dad milking the lame cow and bringing a pail down to the store. Um, is your dad right? Grandfather, grandfather. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, no, my dad
0: milked zero cats <laughs> for fucking sure. Uh, Unless they had cocaine in their odors.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and those, uh, you know, they they grew larger, and then you know there was more money coming in, and they were all, you know, when Main Streets weren't totally gutted, they were. You know, Doug has this quote. He always said like you know every dollar that's made on a farm is turned over seven times locally so like all of this money that is all these big checks that are coming into these dairies and these these could be in the hundreds of thousands millions of dollars like it's mostly being spent locally and it's supporting you know plumbers and electricians and people to work the land and it's supporting the the hardware store down down the way and like it cre- it helps create this community, Um, but then, you know, as things just have gotten undeniably bigger and bigger, margins have gotten smaller. And like, you know, the family, you know, grocery store being uh, switched out with a dollar general, you know, the profits are leaving town rather than staying in the town. And that leads to this breakdown of community um, because all the money is leaving. And instead of someone, uh, you know, working on a farm and building equity in land, they're working hourly in town and renting and that, you know, you can't get ahead like that. Um, so it, 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 it I think you're, yeah, it, I think your, your observation's totally correct. It,
0: it also, I, I think, I think that it also comes back to just like, nothing, I mean, you know, we kind of had this conversation before we started recording about like, you know, the fucking thin veil of locality, right? Like the tomato (laughs) not being in the season, being the talking point. And so we can put our, you know, when we talk about whatever the fuck it is product, you know, what does it take to produce milk? It takes, now, mechanical, like on a level, because milk has become milk is actually the best conversation for the state, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, how I don't even know how much milk costs on on wholesale for one of those producers who buys it, uh, 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 pennies. I I can only imagine it costs them pennies, right? And then it gets trucked out of state. And then it gets mixed up with a bunch of other milk, and then it comes back in the state to buy. Actually, you know, uh, uh, corn is an like maiz, dried corn is an interesting thing. All in Mexico, it's the same. Like a lot of the dried the maiz that they use in the tortillas is grown in northern Mexico by. American companies brought into the United States and then Mm. shipped back and sold It's wild. back to them. It's so wild. (laughs) But this is so like, I I guess I think that this is, uh, this is the hardest thing for me to wrap my head around is like, if we're talking about anything local, whether it be your work, whether it be a commodity like milk or a grain, what are the things that it takes to produce those? And then where is the money coming for them? From for them, we know it takes equipment and machinery, right? So, like, probably a lot of the money that's spent in an industrial construct is actually on the machinery. None of that fucking shit is coming from here. And that's actually probably the most valuable part. The cow is probably far less valuable, and the milk itself is probably far less valuable than the machinery it takes to extract it. Because the more efficient you can be, the faster you can get it, and the lower it's going to cost. What a the medication, the fucking, you know, the, the, um, vac, the vaccinations that they're giving the animals, all those treatments, like where's the education coming from, from the doctors, all of these things can be brought back to community, I think. And, and I don't know the way out for guys like Doug. I don't think that like, in my honest opinion, I don't think that Vermont in 20 years is going to have a lot of success unless we make a drastic change and a drastic decision to like really stand by these fucking people. Well, I understand the perspective that started this whole esoteric conversation of like, yes, it's nice to see the cows on the side of the road and the people milking the cows and the guys doing X, Y, and Z and having their lamb. But Doug still wants a fucking fresh pair of socks because they've all got holes in them. I feel that but the reason Doug still wants like the reason Doug can't buy socks is because we choose to not value Doug as an important part of the community. We as consumers who make the choices, right. Or, you know, the fucking legislature or whatever the fuck you want to call it.
1: Yeah. Commodities are all tied up in, in policy. Um, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you
0: know, the grain that feeds those cows is probably all fucking, you know, it's, it's all coming the majority. An interesting one is, <laughs> so if we're talking about grain, an interesting one is like, is like flour. You know, we have in Vermont, we have uh, a lot of people I see using King Arthur mm-hmm. flour. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. People say King Arthur flour is made in Vermont. When I moved back here and I was doing a, I was helping, uh, Working on this project in Allberg, um, I they wanted to have a bread program and I started to look around. And so I called King Arthur and I was like, it was before I knew about Nitty Gritty Grain who makes fl- organic flour here in Charlotte. Um, I called uh, King Arthur Flour and I said, so do you guys know where your, it's made in Vermont, it says made in Vermont. Do you know where your grain comes from? And they're like, yeah, it's all from the fucking Midwest. You know, it's all from the fucking yeah. the Midwest. Yeah, but because it lands here in Vermont, it's a made in Vermont yeah. product. And how much of that is subsidized? And the craziest thing about fucking grain, corn, soy, any of those mass-produced products that we function on as as a, a commodity crop-based um, culture is it subsidized and it costs more money to
1: produce than it makes to sell. And it's created its own problem. And now those. A lot of the farms need to stay in business. And so our tax dollars are going to supporting these crops that we don't necessarily need. Um, I mean, it's, it's, and it's not cool when (laughs) a company, I didn't know that was the case, but it seems not cool to me when a company is benefiting from the, like their, their, the product they're buying, the raw product they're buying is subsidized but then they're slapping a label on it that makes it seem like it's this local thing. I don't want to say, like, I don't want to- I don't I like, don't want to throw
0: a lot of shade at King I Arthur because
1: we can also edit all this out. I don't want
0: to throw, we're not editing anything, <laughs> by the way. But I, I don't want to say that the product that King Arthur is using is commoditized or is uh, subsidized grain, but I will say that they do have organic yeah. grain and they do have commodity grain right? Yeah. And, okay. and to my understanding. Yep. So here here's the other thing that bothers me when we're talking about local products or the word organic is essentially bullshit. It doesn't really mean anything anymore. We'll say organic, but sustainably grown products is that if you're a company who has a commodity product and you just have an organic product because it fits the need of a sale, that's also an error. So why are you not hundred percent organic? Why does King Arthur, for example, who calls itself a Vermont company have organic and inorganic product? If they right. know that organic is correct because they want to take
1: all of the market share, right? Yeah. It's, it's, the, the food label dance never ceases to sort of <laughs> boggle my mind because there are so many words that get thrown around. Sustainable, organic. Uh, regenerative. Regenerative, yeah. free-ranged, non-homogenized. Uh, it It's like really hard to parse vegan, gluten-free. It's like very hard to parse through all these things, and I think a lot of times, in my observations, folks tend to get pretty clustered in camps. It's like, you know, there's the vegan camp, there's the gluten free camp, and there's the local camp, and there's the uh, vegetarian camp. And, uh, you know, there was the Atkins craze back in the yeah, day. Yeah, I think yeah. that's expired. But um, yeah, it, 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 there's like the, we're working on two scales here. Like, there's enough people. That we need to feed. And so a certain amount of commodity farming needs to happen. And there's a lot of people who can't spend as much as maybe you or I can on food in a given week. And like cheaper products, if we can make them, should be available to those people. Um, and at the same token, like those processes, as we've learned, are not good for the world they're not good for the environment, they're not good for communities. And so there almost needs to be like this parallel uh subsidy program where people are making informed choices and, you know, voting with their dollar in order to subsidize, you know, local businesses that are actually, you know, keeping money in the area and supporting local things. And I think that's where um, you know, my alarm bells were sort of going off with King Arthur, whether it was warranted or not. But like, you <laughs> Sorry, know, King I, I uh, you know, it, I've, I've talked to many contemporaries who, who like, you know, the second they got out of student debt, like the first thing they wanted to spend like a little bit more money on was like good food. And like, it felt important to them to, you know, um, support a local farmer who they maybe had a relationship or maybe didn't have a relationship, but like that felt like an important thing. And that feels like a sort of grassroots subsidy system. Um, and that's, I don't, it, it 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 kind of exists over in the Adirondacks in like a very organic way where- um, Yeah, there was you that was telling me about that, right? Yeah, I think so. I, I used to live over there and there's, there's a bunch of farms who are fully regenerative and are making like the headiest A2, A2, you know, like whole, raw milk sour cream you know that would cost like 15 bucks at the co-op um they sell it for eight bucks but then you know like the um it's like a pay what you can system too so like their neighbor um who can't spend 750 on a dozen eggs you know pays a buck 50 for a dozen eggs yeah and then someone from up the road who can pay 1250 for a dozen eggs pays 1250 and it all kind of comes out in the wash and like are you talking about socialism I
0: guess, I guess I'm talking about socialism. <laughs> I mean, no, but this is, so like, uh, this, so, so this, this becomes. But on a community scale. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Like I, I really do believe and this is my belief. Like I really believe that community can sustain community. I think that the problem that we have is first of all, we have a fucking computer in our hand and we can look at what everybody else is doing and we can know that there's things that we believe are better that we want. We all need things. I don't think that if, I don't think that if capitalism or neoliberalism wasn't the driving force of, of, um, We'll say evolution for the past, you know, fifty years or thirty years or forty years, whatever you want to call it. I still think that technology would exist. Like I still think technology technology could exist in a trade type based reality where what you essentially like paper is just a promissory note. It's just an IOU. Really, and it's saying that like your work is valued at X and my work is valued at whatever, but like at at fucking A. Uh, But the reality is, like, you need to eat food in order to produce a fucking computer or a microphone or headphones, Right. right? So, where do we delineate what's worth more? If you can't wake up in the morning and fucking drink a glass of water and eat a plate of food to go into your office job and produce whatever it is you're producing, we're all at a loss, right? And so <clears throat> I guess like you're talking about this pro- this thing in the Adirondacks where people are paying what they can pay. I think that if you produce more, you should be able to kick in more. If what you produce is of higher value, does it really mean that it's more important because it gains – more dollars at the end of the day, I don't really know that it is. And I think that that's where we've lost our, our line. Like it's important, for example, that you tell a story, right? Like your documentary about, about Doug can, can give us perspective. So that's very important. You know, it's of no less importance than Doug who's producing the milk or the guy who's producing the eggs, right? So I think that we just have to get back to a, or we have to get to a place because I don't know if we've ever been there.
1: Yeah, and it's really disheartening uh, for me on that note to like see, you know, it, it is so integral that we have a bowl of cereal or whatever and drink a glass of milk and go to work. Like we all need to eat. Like it's the most basic thing. And yet the like level of disrespect that, and like like lack of value that people put into people who work in the every aspect of the food industry whether it be a farmer to someone who is serving at a restaurant to someone who's cooking like as far as i'm concerned like all of those professions deserve to be you know up there with doctors lawyers nurses like these are like you know in 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 my mind they are like farming Cooking, like, are among the most noble pursuits, um, and yet, in some ways, they're sort of treated like art. In in, in that, like, you know, you're kind of crazy until y- you really make it, and then you know, you're a celebrity chef, and then you know, and then it's cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah. I just like it. it, it I, I forget who told this to me. It, it was a, I think it was a, a Brazilian um, dude who's very into food down there. But um, this. Uh, this is a not fat checked fact I'm about to drop, um, which is that <laughs> Americans <laughs> <laughs> Americans pay uh, um, like the smallest amount of their income on food, the smallest that percentage of their income on food, and so um, we've been sort of conditioned over time to believe that you know a gallon of milk costs two fifty. It really doesn't cost two fifty, but we've been conditioned to think that. Um, and I think that has like a it, it it makes the work of you know creating a lo- local food system a little bit harder, um, just because we have a skewed perception of how much, of you know what we make in a given week we should be spending on food, and it realistically needs to be a lot more because the dozen eggs for seven fifty really needs to be sold for fourteen bucks. Yeah, I mean eggs might not be the greatest
0: no conversation but, point, but yes. <laughs> I, eggs are a funny one for me. Cause I spend a lot of money on eggs and I even look at the, like, like I know how eggs are produced. Yeah. Like, you know, yes. Eggs. Uh, but like, I'm, I'm so happy to have this conversation with you and so happy that you've dedicated like 10 years of your life to fucking not like you, you weren't really like researching or searching for, there was no objective to your relationship with doug but you watched this struggle in a dairy farmer who i and I, in in dairies in almost every fucking thing that we consume you know it's in so many way everything it's you know? so good it, it's it's fucking delicious it's yeah. in so many things yeah and the people who work in that fucking industry who really care about it. Like in Vermont, we have dairy farmers who really
1: fucking care. I've, You're I, talking about that that uh um that holiday party you went to? What was that program? Uh Milk Migrant with dignity? Justice. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Justicia Milk, yeah, yeah, yeah. Milk with dignity. So like cool. those
0: people like and but like so there, there's guys like Doug who were fucking you know, had a dairy farm. I don't know anything about Doug's practice, but I don't think that anybody really understands. And I didn't until I started going to this thing, because when I came back, I looked specifically at like, you know, is there Latin America, Latin Americans in Vermont, where are they living? You know, how are they working and what are they doing? And I, the, the, the answer I got over and over again is they're working in fucking horrendous conditions Mm -hmm. on dairy farms and no one knows about it. Mm -hmm. But of course they are because who the fuck else is going to do the work to produce the product for that little. I also think that the responsibility lies in the hands of the people who own those dairy farms, not just the companies that buy the milk or sell the milk, but also in the hands of the people who own those dairy farms, because they have to put their foot in the fucking ground too. And, and, unless we all you know it it's like you know I'm living in Burlington now seeing I, I, I from spending 5 years living in a rural community where people are struggling to fucking survive and also seeing the juxtaposition of like tourism booming and exploding in this place where all these people come and it consume 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 don't think about where any anything comes from everything's beautiful everything's amazing like it's not. It's fucking horrendous. I go to, I, you know, I went to, you know, you go to fucking Charlotte. you go to fucking Shelburne. This is farming communities where these Latin American individuals are living in squalor, producing all of this, this, this product that's holding up the bat, like carrying the weight of that community essentially, or the people that own those farms essentially. And those people are driving, you know, the owners are driving Teslas. They're fucking having beautiful far parties on their fucking farm at at the fucking Nordic farms or whatever it's called now. And and that's just that's one of the struggles that I deal with coming back here, seeing farming romanticized the way it is, seeing, mm-hmm. you know a younger generation taking over and not really, it's great that they're taking over and it's great that they're creating an economy based on local food. And it's great that people are paying a little bit more money, but it's not great to me that guys like Doug never got the chance to benefit from any of that and never would because like you said, he doesn't even feel like he
1: can go in the fucking co-op. Have you, uh, have you... I think it's Consider Bardwell. Have you had that cheese? What is it? Consider I'll Bardwell. A little bit closer. Sorry, Consider Bardwell. No, I haven't. I, th- I think it's them. Um, it might be a different creamery. Uh, I think Jasper Hill does this too. But there's there's a couple creameries in Vermont who have really cool programs where they essentially have gone out to farms and said, you know, we make cheese. You, you know, raise cattle, and you milk cows you know, keep doing what you're doing. We'll buy your milk at a premium that, you know, we're going to set based on how much we sell our cheese for. Um, and we're going to aggregate milk from a couple different farms and make cheese. And we're going to bring you into this thing, you know, that they could have just been excluded from, right? Yeah. Um. And I feel like those types of solutions, I mean, I think the, the, in general the the death of the commodity dairy farm is difficult and but there are also like silver linings and there are like environmental you know there's a lot of there are gentleman farmers who are coming back and snatching up plots of land and creating problems
0: yeah yeah there
1: are also you know people with political phd's who are moving back and are really keen on getting into farming and are like getting into regenerative practices, you know, with all the right intentions. And I think that kind of energy is great. Um, and these sort of like aggregating energies of, um, you know, employing people at a livable wage that's outside of the traditional commodity market and allowing them to do what they do. Um, like that's super important, um, as well. And there's like a a limited number of programs. I wish there were more, um, of like, uh, business resources going directly towards farmers to create value-added products like a lot of the dairy farmers who got a business in the state end up just doing beef because it's something that they can get processed um up the way and then sell directly to the store and the profit margin is way better and they're still raising cows right and like yeah i think those types of solutions are really interesting like how do you keep that expertise. How do you keep that wisdom? How do you keep that makeup of the community, but like bring these people into the fold of, you know, a new economy, which, you know, lucky for the earth, you know, regenerativeness is going to be profitable. Um, and so we might actually survive. (laughs) Um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I sort of wonder how, how do we keep those people in the fold rather than, you know, letting them sort of, you know, disappear into the into the sunset I think it so like my
0: perspective about like how you keep the people in the fold like a hundred years ago let's call it 70 years ago when a farmer woke up in the morning I don't think that that farmer woke up in the morning saying, how the fuck am I going to produce enough to sell enough to pay my bills? I think that farmer woke up in the morning and tilled the field to feed his family and feed his community. Right. And he got what he needed from his land. And so I think that a lot of times we look for, like you were saying, like there's people with PhDs coming back who have these ideas and want to become farmers. That's re- a, a really beautiful idealism. But are those people with PhDs willing to put their hand, like it all comes back to me, it all comes back to the employee and I'll explain it this way. When I got to move to Los Angeles and started cooking in Los Angeles and was working, you know, I, I think after, I think my first executive chef position was like a year in or something like that. Right. When I took that executive chef position, I was not expected to cook food I was expected to like just walk around and oversee things and kind of be a face of the kitchen and then pay, you know, I was, had, at the time was making $80,000 a year. Maybe the cooks were making $15 an hour. So in my mind, it made absolutely no sense. Like if I'm making 80,000, do the math, that's three cooks at $15 an hour for 40 to whatever the fuck it was, right? It's like three cooks. Like yeah. I should be doing the work of fucking three cooks, but and not just in cooking and not just in farming and not just in anything, that's the way capitalist or neoliberalist cultures work is that there is someone at the top who probably does less work than everybody else in that structure and makes money based on the fact that they have worked long enough or hard enough to not have to work anymore. And I really think that that's where we need to change. I think we could all work we all wouldn't work as hard for as long if we all just worked on an even plane for our entire lives. Like I don't think about retiring. I don't think about getting to a point where I don't have to work anymore because I don't really feel that I work. I feel like I do things that my family needs. I think that I do, I feel that I do things that I need. I feel that I do things that my community needs. And if those are the things that are driving us forward, then we can move, especially when we're talking about like, you know, stewardship of land or building community. I think that's the perspective we need to take. And going back to like a product, for example, even, you know, uh, Jasper Hill Farms coming in and saying, we'll buy your milk for more, or we'll buy your product for more because we're going to sell it for more. What percentage of the people that are working inside the infrastructure of that milking community are gonna be able to go to the counter and buy that piece of cheese? You were in Michoacan, great fucking example. No one in Michoacan eats avocados because they're way too valuable to fucking eat because they're worth more money than their caloric intake, which is wild. Like they grow them, they should eat them there. This comes back, all kind of circles back to this idea of like the tomato not fucking being available. We've got chocolate on the menu. Like tomato, okay, so let's not eat fucking tomatoes when they're, but let's not eat everything when it's not available in season. Let's eat what we have inside our community and not worry about bringing things in from the outside because that's really, I think, what drives down the price or the value of a product and then creates this insane wage disparity is that we want things all of the time, we want what we want, when we want it, how we want it, Yeah, I think, is the society that we live in, right? We've been conditioned to be able to get it. Which is prob. and I'm not, like, I am, I fucking 100% am guilty of that all the time. Oh, yeah. All are, I can yeah. do is beat my ego down to try to be yeah. less like that, but, you know, this is the fucking the. The, the Doug story, you know, like Doug, like you were saying, like Doug wants that. We got to, I fucking love Doug. I got to meet Doug. Yeah, dude, Doug's the man. The you got to get him on the TV podcast. Gotta, like, get him in here to talk. <laughs> but like Doug wants things the same way. In, in, in the beginning, you were asking me like, do I see that same thing in Mexico? Of course I do. Those people want it because they see that other people have it. Yeah. But why? Like what, you know, why can one have and another not? You know,
1: that's a, that's a yeah. I know it's a big one. It's a big one. I mean, I-, I There's not really an answer to it, right? No, like, that's the No, but I think, I think food is like a really interesting into some potential like policy breakthroughs. Um The guy I work with, Aaron, um did like, he did like the first food documentary. He did a documentary on corn. It was like the first- doc that like investigated the American food system and- um, The guy
0: that's, you're in the same space with you?
1: Uh, no, no. He lives in the Adirondacks. That's why I was over in the Adirondacks um, for the last couple of years. He's a f- fellow filmmaker. Okay. Um, and um, anywho, he, he shared this really impactful quote from, I think it's Chuck Grassley, who's the senator from Iowa, maybe the previous senator now. He's old. They should all retire when they get too old. Yeah, <laughs> um, and except uh, for Bernie, maybe I don't except know for me, he's but he's—I don't know—it'd be fine too. He's getting a little crotchety. Um, anyways, his his line um was that uh, you know food should really be a uh, bipartisan issue because you know and local food specifically because on any one day the U.S. um you know our society is four meals away from a revolution, I think was his quote. It's like four four, wheel, four meals away from civil war. Like if we miss four meals, like shit's gonna fucking, um, you know, blow up. And yet the US at any one point only has 30 days of food on hand. Yeah. And most of that is uh, dependent on a vast network of, of, of logistics, right? Like food needs to... You know, the, the the milk needs to be made in Vermont, shipped to Virginia, and then shipped back to Vermont, right? Yeah, they can't yeah, just yeah. or the meat is the worst example where like the slaughterhouse laws are so restrictive that, you know, cows in Nebraska are being slaughtered in Texas and then being brought back to Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Um and uh so you'd think it would be this bipartisan issue, right? Like, you know, like Democrats moving towards a a you know supporting local food systems, you know, it seems like it's quite a woke liberal ideal, but, and yet, like we saw with the pandemic, the run on food and uh, how tenuous that circumstances and, you know, if, if a f- foreign adversary, as the Republicans would say, um, <laughs> were to like like literally just hack our logistics system and we weren't able to f- move food around, it'd be a f- really big fucking problem. And the most resilient communities are the ones who are making food locally. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's my hope. I think you're on to something. I mean, it, it seems like it's your whole kick, which is, it's so nice that there are people that who's this this is their entire kick, and um, you know, I think local food systems are like the cure to so much um, that is wrong in our society today. Um, but it takes people like you to like spread the good word about it and also like highlight it in, you know, your cooking, um, because it's really special. Um, it's special on so many levels. It's special on like a taste level. It's special on like a, just like getting to know your neighbors. It's special on a, on a like personalizing, you know, this really basic human experience and like we all stand to benefit if we just, uh, you know, maybe give up a little bit in some other part of our life and give a little bit more into into this space.
0: Yeah, and I think that I think that that, uh, and thank you for saying that about me. But I don't. I mean, <clears throat> we had this conversation before we were recording. Also, like, I if, to me it's not special. Like to me, this is just like in. And maybe it's just like the constant attempt to destro- destroy ego in any facet in my life, but I just believe that it's simpler than we make it out to be. I really do believe it's possible for us to all, if we don't, if we just think, I was having this this conversation with this older gentleman that I just met at Foam when I was going out to pick up the beer that they provided for us to drink here. It's delicious. <laughs> um, and he was, we were talking about this I- idealism of like, think, what is it? Think globally, act locally. Is mm-hmm. that what they mm-hmm. say? It's such a fucking weird thing to me. Like, I don't even understand what that means. Like, why would you not think locally and act locally? Like, why is that <laughs> not what we're doing? <laughs> why are we not, why are we not functioning that way um and so yes of course food is the fucking baseline of everything that we do because we need food and water food and water are the two most important things on the face of this fucking planet and we put the least amount of time and effort into making yeah. sure that we have those things i'm interested in the in the in the corn topic because um you know where we live on the planet subsided on fucking corn beans and squash which just so happened to be the perfect amino acid profile to create a perfect protein which Mm -hmm. is everything that our body needs for centuries without any industrialization i do think it's possible a lot of the the a lot of the kickback on whether or not a hundred percent local is possible is like you know, city epicenters like New York City or Chicago. Of course, they're not going to grow their shit right there. But how but much they they can though? But I mean, they're doing it. Yeah, they're building warehouses and hydroponics are a thing. Hi- yeah, but hydropon- hydroponics are are definitely to me they're not the answer. But like the perspective that like the I understand that they are doing vertical grows. They could still grow in soil. They could do the exact same thing growing vertically. But how much you drove across the fucking country with Doug, and I'm sure you've driven across the country more than just with Doug. I'm sure yeah. you've flown across the country how much fucking Arable land exists outside a city like Chicago. It's outrageous. It's in fucking insane. (laughs) More than enough land to provide for them. The problem is that we also don't want to figure out ways to store that product. Right? Mm. Like that's really what it comes down to. Really what it comes down to is the things that we know how to easily store are things like grain, right? Mm. You put them in a fucking silo and they're also a commodity. So that's one of the reasons we put a lot of focus into those things, but all of the other things are possible. I'm going to, I'll fucking go for it. Uh, Tomatoes. uh, We had this (laughs) This, conversation. Tomato, tomato really? really? No, because tomato is a perfect conversation Uh. because tomato is something that everybody wants all the time. Like I've dealt with this throughout my career so goddamn much. Tomatoes are really in season for a short period of time when I was in Los Angeles, I saw them at the farmer's market and fucking all it it, there's essentially perpetual harvest in California. Right. They're really only in season in in a little bit of July, August and September there. I did a project right before I left and moved to uh, Mexico where I said, we're only using the tomatoes. Cause I would go to the farmer's market and I'd be like, you know, why are there tomatoes here when their peak season is August and September? They said, because farmers or chefs want them, right? People want to consume them. So uh, I took a stand and I said, I'm going to can in mason jars. I think I did 12 or 1300 pounds of tomatoes in a month and a half. And people came, I planned this all, like how much I needed to be on the menu until the next tomato season. Um and I did this in a short period of time. And it was grueling, but it was possible. And when people would come to the restaurant, I would serve them uh, a cheeseburger because it was fucking necessary for the owners to have a cheeseburger, which I didn't entirely agree with either. Um, but it was. And we didn't have sliced tomatoes on the menu. And so when I would serve them, we had uh Tomato jam, or a tomato leather, or uh, tomato ketchup that we made in house with tomatoes that we put on it, and they said we want a sliced tomato. It would say uh, we don't have them. And I would have to walk out of the kitchen because explain they would explain to people- All the tomatoes, that tomatoes, tomatoes just No, well, they would have to explain to people like yeah. tomatoes not in season. And the people would be like, well, I went to the farmer's market last week and this farm had a tomato. And I would have to go out and say, well, the farm has a tomato because they have to grow them in a hoop house because you want a sliced tomato. We have tomatoes, but they're served in this fashion. Yeah. So I think it comes down, like all of this also comes down to us all taking a stand. Specifically, I'm holding every fucking chef that I know- And ask anybody who's my friend, who's a chef, I will hold them all to the same accountability. Why do you allow human beings to like why do you allow people to do you allow them to do it? You're building this mentality that they can have what they want when they want it. The gauntlet has been thrown down. And it's (laughs) I always do. (laughs) But but we're not the craziest thing to me is that we're not that far removed from an era where that was not the case. I mean, we're talking about 50 years, 60 years ago. Yeah, totally. That's not even a generation. You were not getting a fucking fresh tomato in the grocery store 50 or 60 years ago.
1: Hopefully this isn't too much of an aside, but have you seen The Menu, the movie? No. It's worth my a friend, watch. My,
0: fr- my friend uh actually sent me a a text message I I want to watch it because I hadn't seen uh I hadn't seen anything about it and uh, my friend sent me a text message a couple nights ago it was like you want to go watch this Stoner movie and sent me just a YouTube link oh, and I watched it It's a little it.
1: disturbing for a Stoner movie.
0: It's always, it's like a horror movie, right?
1: Yeah, it's just like, you know, to 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 try and shoehorn it into the conversation. It's it like is a horror movie, but it's also a comedy that showcases like the absurdity that um sort of the people who make super high cuisine and the people who consume it have like both created. Yeah. You know, it's like, it's the, what you're talking yeah. about. Like, you know, it's this, the chef who's serving the tomato off season, but also the person who wants the tomato off season and they have been playing off each other to reach this absurdist quality. And that's what this film like, really takes down in 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 you know murderous fashion <laughs> i love it because the dickhead
0: because um, the dickhead who's serving that fucking tomato is the reason the asshole who's ordering it wants it because he's because he wants the this is the perfect example of fucking of of like capitalism consumerism at its peak because that dude wants approval so fucking bad that he believes the rich motherfucker is the only person that can give it to him. He doesn't care. You think Doug, if Doug, Doug would go in to a restaurant and be like, uh, I need this to be prepared differently, please. You could never say that, but no. that's not the approval of the person, the chef. That's why I've, I, I, that's why I absolutely, don't even accept the title of chef anymore because it's so absurd to me that they believe that they're creating another world. Like to me, creating another world is like only using what I have. Yeah. Knowing that here, that and that was one of the great things about coming back here and trying to create this concept that I'm creating now, which definitely does not click with a lot of people that come in and, and, and consume it. It's like- I am planning in fucking July what I'm serving in February because I'm only going to use shit that's from here.
1: So yeah, it's that, what's that? Um, it's that whole idea in design like constraints breed creative solutions. Like yeah. in the absence of constraints, there's not much creativity, but with constraints, like you have to be real creative. And that's where actually, like most of the interesting shit ends up coming from.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: I, I'm so sure you have your Vermont constraints now.
0: But I'm sure but I'm sure it's the same in 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 film. In, oh, a, yeah, in any, any type of any, art, it's the same. Yeah. It's like, you know, if I can go even, even if we're talking about painting a picture, it's like if I can go and fucking buy all wh- the most beautiful art that I've seen in my life is the shit that's created like go to the the Valley of Oaxaca and go to Teotitlan de Valle and watch the way that they create Fucking woven fabric from yeah. the 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 looming, like the creating of the yarn that they're using to the dyeing with flowers wow. of every color that they use, the most vibrant colors you've ever seen. They're not going to fucking blick and buy and buying the color of dye that they want. They're creating using the palette of their environment. And It's the same in film. It's like you were given Doug, and Doug didn't seem like the Doug, by the way, has got like a fucking hour and a half of cred, <laughs> and I love it. but like think about that, think about it from that perspective at nineteen, you walked in in khakis. <laughs> from Connecticut. Yeah, I may have graduated from the Khakis at that point, but <laughs> but you, but not you, far off. But you but you adapted to the situation mm. to create probably what will end up being one of the most important pieces of art that you created that probably also will dictate what you create into the future and has dictated a lot of what you've created in the past 10 years. And so when I moved when I moved specifically to Puerto Escondido, opened my my restaurant there, I had left Los Angeles, where I had like millions of dollars at disposal when creating projects to like, I've got X and I want to create X. And how do I do that? Yeah. Right. And I also took away, like, I'm only working with fire. I'm only working with the tools in my hands.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Not only did I create, and I went into that creation saying like, it's not, he, I said this with the people that I was creating this with. I said, look, we're not there now. Light switches are going to turn on slowly. And then we're going to start clicking. And it's going to make sense at some point. Right now, it doesn't make any sense at all. But it's going to start making sense when we figure out how to make it make sense. But first, we have to devolve before we can evolve
1: mm-hmm.
0: and figure out how to use the tools at our hands. And it did. It started making hmm. a lot of sense. But still, to consumers, there was people that would come in that would be like, this is the greatest thing ever and then everybody like the majority of the human beings who are coming in the beginning were like why is there no steak on the menu why is there like why is this not here why is this not here
1: yeah i think like that's it it, maybe they just weren't ready for it yet or that's like their own holdups but it's like you like what what camera do you shoot with it sort of depends on the the day. And for a long time, I was just you know borrowing and stealing gear, and now it's I like shoot on like a pretty baseline Sony camera.
0: Why do you not shoot with a red?
1: It's very expensive. <laughs> That's it's the, a very but, expensive but camera. So, but so the
0: reason I'm posing that question is because I know a little bit about filmmaking, yeah, yeah. And so the reason I'm asking that question is because like somebody asking me like why do I not have a fucking tomato on the menu in January.
1: Yeah, or why like, do I well,
0: not shoot or why do I not have Kobe beef man. or why do I not have what? Yeah. It, but not only is it not, is it expensive? It's just not necessary.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, it, 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 you know, there's this assumption that, oh, if you have the nicest ingredient or if you have the, or the fanciest ingredient, I, I guess you would sort of put it, um, then you're going to get, The best product, but it's not true because, like, some of the worst films I've ever seen have been made on the fanciest gear, and some of the best films I've ever seen have been made on the worst gear. And some of the best food I've ever had has been made in the well, I would say all of the best food I've ever had (laughs) has been made in the humblest of circumstances. And that's why I love, you know, like Anthony Bourdain's whole kick. Yeah. Like, he had an entire Show and worldview dedicated to like elevating, you know, the grandmas of the world who are like, you know, whipping up food in back alleyways, you know, with no glory, and yet that is like for him was like the pinnacle of the food experience, and he's so right. Yeah. Um, and it it was I love that show because it's just cool to like remind yourself of that. But there's not there's not a whole lot of um, you know, reinforcement that that is sort of where we should be looking. You know, there's there's this whole um, there's a really beautiful documentary about uh, Fred Rogers, um, and his whole shtick is that you know like the the he would talk to like kids who had disabilities and he would, you know, he's, he's used to be the one like this getting Mr. Rogers, Mr. Correct? Rogers, yeah. Yeah, getting asked all these questions and he would be asking all of these kids, you know, like about their experience. Um, because he like truly believed that these kids were, you know, he was Christian and, you know, in his phrasing, it was like, they were closer to God because they have been dealing with more than he has. And he had more to learn from them than they did from him. And like, they were, you know, elevated in, in, in his mind. Um, and I don't know, I really love those reframings, um, of, of, you know, who deserves to be sort of exalted, um, because they tend to be from the, the humblest of, of places. They're literally always from the humblest of
0: places. Absolutely. Like, you know, I, my perspective has always been so, to go to like the, you know, the Anthony Bourdain talking about the grandmothers and like the, the humble people make it, what the majority of, of, of chefs, especially these like really high end chefs that this movie is probably making fun of, I are doing what I call it is the cover, ba- <laughs> the cover bands. <laughs> They're all trying to recreate their own version of something that someone else has created before right and if you're trying to do that you're never going to it's impossible like it, but it seems that that's what consumers want in film as well it's the same like we had this conversation about like you were talking about like this ai creation inside video now where like movies are being like netflix is is dictating their creation based on ai uh
1: yeah, like, like the, metrics the gathering of of AI
0: metrics or whatever the fuck yeah. it is, right? Um, and and uh, that's the death of creativity. Totally, the death of creativity. I don't. I mean, original thought almost doesn't exist anymore.
1: It gives us an
0: opening, though. I it think does. it gives us an opening it because does. <laughs>
1: the 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 hope. You know, maybe this is my naive hope, but um, you know, as things get more homogenous or get, you know, super easy to consume. I think music streaming is a really good example. Like, you know, LPs all of a sudden become hip again. yeah, Cause it's something physical that, you know, encourages you to listen to an entire album and not listen to something on shuffle or just listen to Spotify's like horribly siloing algorithm that just has you listening to the exact same shit Fuck. every single week. Um, You know, you go to a record store and you pick something funky off the shelf from Brazil and all of a sudden, whoa, Tim Maia is the funkiest motherfucker in the Western Hemisphere and your mind's totally blown. Um, But that's my hope is that there's a lane for, you know, people who aren't doing the cover band syndrome like yourself and people who are making strange avant-garde Decades-long documentaries like myself <laughs> um, that, like somehow, that becomes you know doable, um, yeah. and we don't you know get beat down enough by a system that doesn't tend to reward that to stop doing it. Yeah. So crossing oh. fingers for us. Here's
0: to hoping. Yeah, man. All right. Well, we've been doing, and we're at an an hour and thirty minutes now, and I feel like we Beautiful. can continue going. But uh, let's wrap this up, and we'll come back at it. Thank I you appreciate sir. having you. Um, let everybody know, like, where do we find you? Your production company? Uh, when does the film with Doug drop? G- give us, give us all the details, real quick, before we tap out.
1: Um, almost no details. I don't have a website. I don't have Instagram. Um, <laughs> but you can swing by the Karma Birdhouse in Burlington. And come say what's up. Um, and yeah, Underdog will be out in some form in the next two or three months. So. Cool. Um, well, Doug, Doug lives on Munger Street in Middlebury. I'm sure he'd also appreciate you swinging by.
0: Holler at Doug, <laughs> and we'll get back on it when uh, when the film is released. I appreciate you. I appreciate your perspective. Um, thanks to Foam for providing the wonderful beer that we're sipping on. And, uh, yeah, let's do this again when the film's out. Thank you, brother. you. <laughs>